Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. Democracy Now! is committed to bringing you the ad-free, in-depth news you rely on. Our daily global news hour is not funded by corporations or the government. We don't run ads or have a paywall. We rely on you to make our daily news hour possible. Please donate $5, $10, or any amount at democracynow.org today to support our independent reporting. Your gift will be matched dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! Default was the giant sword hanging over America's head. But because of the good work of President Biden, as well as Democrats in the House and Democrats in the Senate, we are not defaulting. The Senate has approved a bipartisan deal to suspend the debt ceiling, preventing the country from defaulting for the first time in history. We'll speak to California Congressmember Ro Khanna about why and he and many progressive Democrats voted against the deal. Also, why he continues to call for his colleague, Senator Dianne Feinstein, to resign. Then we go to Atlanta, where a police SWAT team, guns drawn, raided the Atlanta Solidarity Fund and arrested three people who've been raising money to bail out protesters opposed to the construction of a massive police training facility known as Cop City. We will fight back here in the city of Atlanta. We will fight back in the state of Georgia. We will call our caravans and organizers to come all the way across the country, five more times, to stop Cop City. Plus, the billionaire Sackler family gets legal immunity as a federal appeals court has ruled the makers of OxyContin can be shielded from prosecution for their role in creating and fueling the deadly opioid epidemic. There is no admission of wrongdoing. And now, after the Second Circuit ruled, no individual state government will ever be able to sue the Sacklers in civil courts and get them to acknowledge that they ever did anything wrong. We'll also speak to a father who lost his 18-year-old son to the opioid epidemic. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The U.S. Senate has approved legislation to suspend the limit on the U.S. national debt ahead of a June 5th deadline to avoid a catastrophic default. On this vote, the yeas are 63, the nays are 36. The 60-vote threshold having been achieved, the bill is passed. The legislation imposes new work requirements on thousands of people receiving food stamps and other forms of government assistance. It also rolls back the National Environmental Policy Act and fast-tracks the approval and construction of the fracked gas Mountain Valley pipeline through West Virginia and Virginia. Speaking after the bill's passage late Thursday, Senate Democratic Majority Leader Chuck Schumer defended the compromises, which were sought by conservative West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin. The bottom line is that the Mountain Valley Pipeline was part of the whole deal that we, uh, that we had originally, uh, that I had originally struck with Manchin for the IRA. It does a, you take the whole plan and it does a huge amount of good for the environment. I stick by my word. Just five members of the Senate Democratic Caucus voted against the debt ceiling deal. 
President Biden, who's promised to sign the legislation, is addressing the nation at 7 p.m. Eastern this evening. In more news from Capitol Hill, the Senate voted Thursday to revoke President Biden's student debt plan to give 40 million U.S. borrowers up to $20,000 in loan relief apiece. Independent Senator Kirsten Sinema joined Democratic Senators Joe Manchin and John Tester, along with all 49 Senate Republicans, in favor of repealing student loan relief. President Biden has promised to veto the bill. The governor of Russia's western Belgorod region says two people were killed and two others injured earlier today when Ukrainian forces shelled a town just inside Russia's border with Ukraine. This follows a cross-border raid by an anti-Putin militia on the Russian town of Shabakino, which injured 12 people and set more than two dozen buildings on fire, including a kindergarten. In Kyiv, officials say Ukraine's military shot down 36 Russian missiles and drones around the capital region over night. Two people were reportedly injured by falling debris. Meanwhile, a top Ukrainian minister said Russia's sowed winter crops for this year's harvest in parts of occupied Ukraine, claimed by President Vladimir Putin as Russian territory. Officials also said Russia is blocking the safe passage of Ukrainian shipments of food and fertilizer under the Black Sea grain export deal. At the United Nations, spokesperson Stefan Dujarek confirmed Russia has recently imposed a continuous slowdown at Black Sea ports. This is a very serious situation. We need to move forward. The initiative is bound for renewal on 17 July. Global hunger hotspots are increasing, as we've been notifying you on a regular basis. And the specter of food inflation and market volatility lurks in all countries. Ukraine's president has made a fresh push for membership in the European Union and NATO. President Volodymyr Zelensky made the request at a gathering of European leaders in Moldova, where he also called on Western nations to come to the aid of Moldova's leaders who have accused Russia of trying to destabilize and topple their government. This comes as foreign ministers from NATO member nations gathered in Oslo, Norway, Thursday to discuss the war in Ukraine and the possible expansion of the 31-member military alliance. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said he's pushing for Sweden's accession to NATO ahead of a summit in Lithuania planned for July 11th. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg said he'll soon travel to Turkey in a bid to convince President Recep Tayyip Erdogan to end Turkish opposition to Sweden's bid. Meanwhile, China's envoy to Ukraine has called for the U.S. and its allies to stop sending weapons to the battlefield and hold peace talks. Li Hui made the remarks from Beijing after returning from a 12-day tour of Europe and Russia. Russia has said that it has never opposed peace talks and has always supported a political solution. Ukraine also said that it cherishes and desires peace. I feel that the two sides have not firmly shut the door to peace talks. In Canada, hundreds of protesters disrupted the opening day of North America's largest military weapons convention, CANSEC, taking place in Ottawa. Activists on Thursday blocked vehicle and pedestrian entrances as they carried banners saying, stop profiting from war and war crimes start here. The peaceful action delayed Canadian Defence Minister Anita Anand's opening keynote address for over an hour, in which she went on to tout a new cross-border cybersecurity program aimed at protecting Canada's defense officials, contractors and infrastructure. Anand told the crowd, quote, Putin's war in Ukraine has reminded us that the cyber domain is crucial to our national security, unquote. Lockheed Martin is one of the convention's largest sponsors as its stock has soared following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. 
in Iran. The two women journalists whose reporting on Masamini's death in police custody last September helped set off a nationwide uprising were tried this week in what press freedom groups blasted as a sham trial. Elahe Mohammadi and Nilufar Hamdi had been prevented from seeing their lawyers ahead of the trial, and the lawyers were reportedly not permitted to present a defense in court during the closed-door proceedings. Last month, the reporters were awarded the prestigious 2023 UNESCO Guillermo Cano World Press Freedom Prize, alongside a third imprisoned Iranian journalist and activist, Nargis Mohammadi. Thousands of immigrant workers walked off their jobs across Florida Thursday to protest a draconian anti-immigration bill signed by Republican Governor Ron DeSantis that's set to take effect July 1st. The new law imposes harsh penalties on certain employers who don't check their workers' immigration status, among other measures. In Immokalee, workers and their families led a march denouncing DeSantis as part of a nationwide protest day called A Day Without Immigrants. This is an undocumented farm worker who kept her identity concealed as she spoke at the protest. I ask the governor to have, above all, a conscience. All the vegetables and food that arrives at your table go through the hands of an immigrant, and that is all I can say. As mothers, as women, we are honest people who only come to fight for a better future for our family. In more immigration news, a federal judge in Texas heard arguments Thursday in a lawsuit led by nine Republican states to end the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program known as DACA. A new version of the 2012 Obama-era program was presented by advocates as they fight to salvage the relief, which has provided temporary protection from deportation and work authorization to hundreds of thousands of immigrants brought to the United States as children. The judge presiding over the case, Andrew Hainan, previously declared DACA unlawful in 2021, blocking all new applications while appeals are resolved in court. A ruling deciding DACA's fate isn't expected for months, and the case is likely to head to the Supreme Court. This comes as the Chicago City Council voted Wednesday to allocate more than $50 million from a budget surplus to provide emergency humanitarian aid and housing to the thousands of asylum seekers who've been sent to Chicago since last August by Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott. This is Chicago Alderman Andre Vasquez. So we've got um, around 10,000 asylum seekers coming from South and Central America. Um, close to 1,000 of them are currently um, living in our police stations, right? You're talking sleeping on mats on the floor, uh, sometimes on the floor directly. And we're talking women, children, like whole families. Uh, so the city currently is looking to see how it's going to tackle it um, at a time where we don't have the funding and resources from the state and federal government to really um, adequately address it. The Supreme Court has dealt a fresh blow to U.S. labor unions, delivering a ruling that makes it easier for employers to sue workers who go on strike. Thursday's eight-to-one opinion, authored by Justice Amy Coney Barrett, sided with a Washington state business that sued members of the Teamsters Union after their work stoppage left wet concrete in trucks, forcing the company to throw away the cement at a financial loss. Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson was the lone dissenter. The Working Families Party blasted the Supreme Court's latest anti-union ruling, writing in a statement, quote, the institution that was at one point the last line of defense for working people against oppression and corporate greed is now a bludgeon wielded against those very people by the wealthy and well-connected, they said. 
In Seattle, hundreds of workers at Amazon's corporate headquarters walked out Wednesday during a lunchtime demonstration to call out Amazon's inaction on its climate goals and labor issues at the company. We want Amazon to do better. We want uh, the uh, warehouse workers to have better conditions. We want uh, responsibility towards uh, climate problems and climate impact. Workers also protested layoffs affecting 27,000 people since November in a recent forced return to office policy. Amazon corporate workers in other cities and countries took part in the walkout, many of them virtually. Bill Cosby has been sued by another woman for sexual assault. Victoria Valentino says Cosby raped her and sexually assaulted her friend at his home in 1969 after drugging them. Valentino, then an actor and singer, filed a lawsuit under a new California look-back law that gives sexual assault survivors a limited window to file civil suits that exceed the normal statute of limitations. Cosby, who's been accused of rape and other sexual crimes by dozens of women, was allowed to walk free from prison to two years ago on a technicality over his 2018 sexual assault conviction. And a federal monitor investigating the death of 31-year-old Joshua Valles and other disturbing events at the Rikers Island jail complex. An autopsy revealed Valles died of a fractured skull, which appears inconsistent with prison reports. The monitor also accused the city jail of a lack of transparency. This comes as New York's Department of Corrections says it will stop notifying the press when someone dies in one of its jails. The Legal Aid Society said, quote, this is another low light in the Department of Corrections campaign to keep outside eyes away from the catastrophe that is the city's jail system and the harm it inflicts daily on New Yorkers trapped inside its deadly walls. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. President Biden's expected to soon sign legislation suspending the debt ceiling after the Senate voted 63 to 36 on a bipartisan deal that had been approved by the House earlier. The bill will prevent the United States from defaulting for the first time in history. The legislation also caps domestic spending below the current rate of inflation while allowing larger increases to the military budget. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer spoke after the vote. Democrats are feeling very good tonight. We've saved the country from the scourge of default, even though there were some on the other side who wanted default, wanted to lead us to default. We may be a little tired, but we did it. So we're very, very happy. Default was the giant sword hanging over America's head. But because of the good work of President Biden, as well as Democrats in the House and Democrats in the Senate, we are not defaulting. Tonight's vote is a good outcome because Democrats did a very good job taking the worst parts of the Republican plan off the table, and that's why Dems voted overwhelmingly for this bill, while Republicans certainly in the Senate did not. Ahead of the final vote, the Senate rejected a number of amendments to the legislation, including one by Virginia Democratic Senator Tim Kaine, who wanted to remove a section of the bill that fast-tracks the approval and construction of the controversial 300-plus-mile-long frack gas Mountain Valley pipeline through West Virginia and Virginia. Many progressive Democrats voted against the debt legislation due to the pipeline provision, as well as new work requirements for thousands of people receiving food stamps and other forms of government assistance. Meanwhile, a number of Republicans opposed the deal for not cutting non-military spending enough. 
some of the senators who voted against the final debt deal include independent Senator Bernie Sanders, Democrats John Fetterman, Ed Markey, Jeff Merkley, and Elizabeth Warren, and Republicans Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, Lindsey Graham, and Josh Hawley. We go now to California Democratic Congressmember Ro Khanna, who voted against the legislation in the House. So can you respond to the passage in both the House and the Senate, uh, why you voted against it and why you also seem to be glad that it passed? Well, it's good that our nation avoided default, but it came on the backs of the poor, of students, of the most vulnerable, of women. It was a punch in the gut to young climate activists across the country by entrenching the Mountain Valley pipeline. And progressives have been saying, why didn't we increase the debt ceiling back in the lame duck when we were calling for it? Progressives have been saying, why can't the Treasury Department just continue to pay the bills as they had the constitutional obligation and duty to do? Larry Tribe has said they can do that. The Treasury could keep paying the bills and the Fed is not going to bounce the Treasury checks and the courts would have upheld that. So there are many other ways that we could have avoided this default. Uh, and we did not think that we should avoid the default on the backs of the most vulnerable. So why didn't the House, when it was still in control of the—when the Democrats were still in control after they lost in 2022, but the new party—the new uh, Congress hadn't taken over, why didn't they do this? We should have. Some of us were calling for us to do that. Now, back then, we were trying to finish the Inflation Reduction Act. That is a very important piece of legislation, and I'm proud of it. But there may have been a hesitation to negotiate both for that uh, and for the debt ceiling increase. That was a mistake. We, I'd much rather that we have been negotiating just with Senator Manchin uh, than uh, with McCarthy. Maybe uh, the Mountain Valley pipeline would still have been uh, is something that would have been in the agreement, though I, many would have worked very, very hard to prevent that. But certainly uh, some of the, the framework, which increases defense spending and decreases social spending for social programs, would not have been in that framework. And you also would have had some alternative sources of revenue, because even Senator Manchin uh, believes we need to get rid of the carried uh, interest loophole, that we need to increase taxes. So the biggest mistake, in my view, was that we did not do this in the lame duck. But the second point is, uh, it's not just the left or the fringe that is saying that the president is constitutionally obligated to pay the bills of what past Congresses have said. This is Larry Tribe's view. Paul Krugman is, has said, why is Treasury not coming up with multiple places of paying these bills? And it was actually Secretary Yellen who was warning back in November and December, urging the Congress to do something. House Minority Whip Catherine Clark said Republicans forced Democrats' hand. There is no perfect negotiation when you are the victims of extortion. Nobody likes to pay a ransom note, and that's exactly what tonight's vote is. So if you can uh, elaborate on that and also talk about what it means, these work requirements for people who, for example, are sick or hungry? 
Well, let me answer the work requirements first. Think of a 51 or 52-year-old uh, mom uh, who uh, is uh, disabled or has a back pain or has some health condition and she uh, isn't able to, to go to work. Uh, they Now she will be denied $6 a day. Now, if she has uh, a custodian relationship with a child that may not be technically recognized uh, under the law as a parent-child relationship. This is going to hurt women uh, in their early 50s the most, according uh, to a lot of the studies. Now, people say that the president uh, got uh, an exemption for veterans and for homelessness, and I applaud him for that. But you can't penalize and hurt one group of people and then applaud that another group of people is being helped and think, uh, that that all washes out and is fine. That sort of utilitarian calculus, uh, the pain of one group is justified by the improvement of the others. I don't believe in that way of moral ethical reasoning. I believe in the dignity of every individual, that you don't hurt one group to help another. And Democrats should not be for hurting women in their 50s, poor Americans in their 50s, uh, to, to uh, uh, try to reduce a deficit when we could have been reducing extraordinary defense spending or these extraordinary tax cuts. And Catherine Clark is right. Look, the Republicans are the ones who held the economy hostage here, who demanded a ransom note. Uh, but we shouldn't then say, OK, we're going to embrace a framework that uh, it, it adopts their uh, their view that defense should go up and social spending should go down. What we should say is, if they're going to hold us ransom, that we're going to pay the bills and go to the Roberts Court. Is the, is the Roberts Court really going to tell Janet Yellen uh, to stop paying bills that she's constitutionally obligated to do? Is, is, is the Roberts Court really going to tell Powell to bounce Janet Yellen's checks? I, I just don't see the courts doing that. And the issue of uh, MVP, um, which, of course, has positive connotation, uh, but uh, when it comes to sports, but is the Mountain Valley pipeline that so many have opposed, saying um, that the greenhouse gas emissions that could result from the fracked gas that uh, goes through the pipeline um, uh, could be equivalent to something between 26 and 37 coal-fired power plants. Uh, you have that within this bill. You also have Biden going forward on the Willow Project in Alaska. Can you talk about the significance of this? And also, um, a person you've talked about is your friend, Senator Manchin, the power he has almost as the second President Joe. Well, this is a punch in the gut to climate activists around the country, to young people around the country. They saw some momentum with the Inflation Reduction Act, where Congress finally passes uh, a major investment in solar and wind uh, in batteries and electric vehicles. And then they see uh, the administration approve the Willow Project in Alaska, and they're bewildered. How can a administration that is uh, focused on climate then be allowing uh, for this drilling in Alaska? And now they see the uh, expedited approval of the Mountain Valley Pipeline, saying that the courts don't matter. If the courts are finding environmental harm, we're going to go build this pipeline that is going to hurt com local communities, that is going to hurt the environment. Uh, and we're going to uh, do this uh, in a bill that has nothing to do 
with climate policy. This is uh, just drives a, a cynicism. And some of us voted no to speak up for them, but we really have to understand that there's a disillusionment that we uh, risk when every time we do this, we chip away at young people's faith that this country uh, is serious about the climate. Now, I I said to, to, to Senator Manchin uh, during the whole Inflation Reduction Act that we were going to have to make compromises uh, with him. And I was part of some of those conversations. But I think the Mountain Valley Pipeline is a bridge too far. We did make compromises with him. We had funding in there for uh, carbon capture. We had funding in there for nuclear. We had funding in there uh, for technologies of, uh, of potential carbon removal. Uh, the amounts that we uh, allocated for climate were far less ultimately uh, than what we started with. We got rid of a lot of the sticks for utilities from the clean electricity program. We reduced the fee of methane. It's not like there was not a compromise. This is uh, a bridge too far. I wanted to ask you about a different issue, uh, Congressman Khanna. Uh, last month, your colleague, Democratic senator from California, Dianne Feinstein, returned to Capitol Hill for the first time since her office announced a diagnosis of shingles in February. The 89-year-old California Democrat said in a statement she'd resume her duties with a lighter schedule. She had missed 91 floor votes in the Senate. Her absence stalled the advance of President Biden's judicial nominees after Republicans denied Democrats' request to temporarily replace her on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Um, the San Francisco Chronicle last year published a story raising concerns about Feinstein's mental faculties months before this most recent announcement of shingles. Um, and now there's been some discussion, I think, in The New York Times and others that uh, it was complicated by encephalitis. Uh, that's um, inflammation of the brain. California Congressmember, you and some of your colleagues, including New York Congressmember Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, have called on Feinstein to retire immediately. Now, in April, former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said calls for Feinstein to resign are sexist. This is what she said. It's interesting to me. I don't know what political agendas are at work that are going after Senator Feinstein in that way. I've never seen them go after a man who was sick in the Senate in that way. So that was Senator Pelosi. That was uh, House, former House Speaker Pelosi. Um, you were calling for Dianne Feinstein to resign when she wasn't able to come back. Now she is. Um, why are you continuing to call for her to resign? It's a very sad situation. And the reality is that she's not able uh, to do the job. In fact, just yesterday in my district, Someone was talking about vacancies in the San Jose District Court, and could I contact my senator to discuss that? And I contacted Alex Padilla, because the reality is no one can get in touch with her that I know of. Uh, she just has a staff that's running everything. And it's a very, very sad uh, situation, and she should uh, step down with dignity. Now, the New York Times uh, has a long editorial where they actually refute uh, Speaker Pelosi's statement, and they say this has nothing to do with sexism or ageism. This is simply the view that people should be able to do uh, the basics of the job. And that is, again, respecting uh, the voters. 
Here is, I think, partly what's going on in candor. Uh, there is a concern about who Governor Newsom would appoint if Dianne Feinstein stepped down. And Governor Newsom has said that he would appoint uh, a black woman. And I want to be transparent. I'm a co-chair of uh, Barbara Lee's uh, Senate campaign. And many people have speculated that Barbara Lee would be one of the potential people that Gavin Newsom uh, could appoint. And that, I think, is coloring a lot of why people want Dianne Feinstein to say. To that, I have a simple uh, reply. For 250 years in America, we've been tipping the scales against black women. If one time the scales were tipped in their favor, it's not the end of the world. So just to be very clear, you're saying that because Gavin Newsom said he would report he would um, appoint an African-American woman, he had said that to replace Kamala Harris, but then ended up um, uh, appointing uh, Alex Padilla, the first Latino senator to represent California. And so now it's come down to this. Now, Nancy Pelosi um, uh, is thrown her support to Adam Schiff. Um, Katie Porter's also running. If Barbara Lee were uh, we're appointed now. Uh, the concerns, as all the articles are talking about, is that would it give her a leg up in this Senate race? Uh, do you think that's the reason Nancy Pelosi is throwing around these other charges, trying to keep Dianne Feinstein in office? Politico has a piece I'm looking at right now. Feinstein's primary caregiver, Pelosi's daughter. Whenever you see uh, Dianne Feinstein, the senator um, uh, in the Senate now, you often see right next to her Pelosi's oldest daughter, and some are saying she's really preventing her from um, <clears throat> being exposed to the press and others. Is this Nancy Pelosi's real concern? Is her favoring Adam Schiff for the Senate? I respect Speaker Pelosi, and I certainly don't want to speculate on her motives, but I do think more generally this is the primary concern of what's motivating people to, to keep Diane Feinstein in and who's going to succeed her. And many people, in fairness to Gavin Newsom, he never, in my understanding, made a hard commitment after Kamala Harris's seat to appoint an African-American woman. He said he would take that into consideration. But he has made a hard commitment on this seat to appoint an African-American woman. I said he could appoint a caretaker, but if he does choose to appoint a Barbara Lee, like I said, I don't think that's the end of the world, given how much the country has been tilted against African-American women uh, for 250 years, given that we don't have a single African-American woman in, uh, in the Senate. And I think that that broader dynamic of the Senate race is what is coloring uh, people wanting Dianne Feinstein to stay there. And that's a sad situation. And finally, Congressmember Khanna, are you concerned that just as Republicans said no to Dianne Feinstein being temporarily, temporarily replaced on the Judiciary Committee um, when she was away, are you concerned that if she resigned and someone else stepped in, that somehow um, they would control um, who, uh, whether or not there would be another Democrat allowed to be on the, in the Judiciary Committee where the judicial appointments are made? That's a fair question. I'm not, because the Republican leadership has said 
that if that situation happened, they would honor the process of allowing uh, the uh, the replacement to be on uh, the Judiciary Committee and make up the numbers, because that is the precedent that they have, and that affects the Republicans' own uh, seat assignments. And everyone that I have talked to on the Senate side believes uh, that they would honor uh, that because it affects their own uh, Senate seat assignments. Congressmember Rokana, we want to thank you for being with us. Democratic Congressmember from California, Deputy Whip of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, speaking to us from Fremont, California. Next up, we go to Atlanta, where police SWAT team, guns drawn, raided the Atlanta Solidarity Fund, arresting three people who'd been raising money to bail out protesters opposed to a massive police training facility known as Cop City, uh, opposed to it being built. Stay with us. Viceroy's. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we go to Atlanta, Georgia, where a police SWAT team, guns drawn, raided the Atlanta Solidarity Fund on Wednesday and arrested three people who'd been raising money to bail out protesters opposed to the construction of a massive police training facility known as Cop City. Marlon Kautz, Adele McLean, and Savannah Patterson were charged with one count each of money laundering and charity fraud. Warrants allege the three were, quote, misleading contributors to fund the actions in part of Defend the Atlanta Forest, a group classified by the United States Department of Homeland Security as domestic violent extremists. As proof of money laundering, the warrants cite reimbursements from April 2021 to March of this year that total less than $7,000 and were for forest cleanup, totes, COVID rapid tests, media and yard signs. The Atlanta Solidarity Fund issued a statement that it's existed for seven years, quote, with the sole purpose of providing resources to protesters experiencing repression. To be clear, none of the arrested cop city activists have been designated as domestic violent extremists, nor have they been convicted, just charged. In March, Prosecutors charged 23 forest defenders with domestic terrorism after clashes between police and protesters less than two months after Atlanta police shot dead Manuel Tortuguita Terán, a 26-year-old environmental activist. An autopsy concluded they were sitting with their hands raised up in front of their body when police shot them 57 times. 
In response to the arrest Wednesday, the National Lawyers Guild issued a statement, quote, in firm solidarity with the Atlanta Solidarity Fund and all of the Stop Cop City activists unjustly targeted by law enforcement, unquote. They noted, quote, bail funds exist to protect people's right to dissent. They're necessary, legally sound resources that help people more safely access their constitutionally protected rights to speech and assembly by lowering the risks of financial ruin or indefinite jail time, unquote. The arrests come just days before the Atlanta City Council is set to vote on the fate of Cop City. Officials recently admitted the public cost of the project will top $67 million, twice as high as originally stated. For an update, we go to Atlanta to speak with Kamau Franklin, founder of the organization Community Movement Builders. Kamau, welcome back to Democracy Now! I mean, can you lay out what happened? I, as we look at this image of a SWAT team moving in, guns drawn, um, charging uh, this group, ultimately, um, the authorities, with charity fraud— Certainly someone like George Santos, who was just recently arrested, uh, there wasn't a SWAT team that moved in on him. Uh, can you talk about what took place? Sure. Thanks for having me. So what took place was an escalation by the authorities, the state of Georgia, the city of Atlanta, on the infrastructure of the movement. Uh, so approximately at 9 a.m. on Wednesday, uh, the uh, Georgia Bureau of Investigation, along with SWAT teams, there's reports that there were personnel from Homeland Security there, uh, decided to, to, to back a truck up in a residential neighborhood, an armored vehicle with armored police personnel, SWAT teams, uh, to basically go in, guns drawn, as you stated, uh, to arrest people on what essentially is, would be considered a white-collar crime and or a financial crime in terms of what the charges would be. But this use of a violent force against the Atlanta Solidarity Fund really shows that the real intent has nothing to do uh, with, uh, with any criminality, uh, which has never taken place with the Atlanta Solidarity Fund. But this is really another way of destroying and attacking the infrastructure of organizing and movement, particularly against those who have been organizing against Cop City. Wouldn't this, to say the least, be a deterrent uh, to people who might want to donate to the fund? Well, uh, apparently this is with the hope of the Atlanta police and the Georgia Bureau of, Invest uh, Georgia Bureau of Investigation and, again, the Governor Kemp. Um, but already the movement has stood strong. We found an alternative bail fund, a national bail fund, which is stepping in uh, to support uh, movement organizers and the, uh, the folks who were arrested who are part of the Atlanta Solidarity Fund. Um, but, yes, the very attempt is to ruin the Atlanta Solidarity Fund, an organization, as stated, has been around for over seven years, way before the Stop Cop City organizing and activism, way before even the Black Lives Matter protest in 2020. Um, these folks have been around organizing and supporting movement activists and organizers, uh, making sure that anyone who was arrested in Atlanta had an opportunity to receive bail. And instead of being locked up and waiting trial, that those folks could defend themselves on any specious charges. Once they were out, they could resume their lives.
lives. They could resume being active and organizing. They are based, you know, basically a needed infrastructure for organizing a movement, which the state and the city has gone after and attacked. I want to go to Marlon Kautz, one of the three Atlanta Solidarity Fund organizers who were arrested on Wednesday. Uh, but they were speaking in February after information surfaced that Georgia prosecutors were preparing RICO charges against activists who opposed the construction of Cop City in Atlanta. Uh, he's currently in jail. We understand that this movement is as broad as society itself. It includes environmental activists, community groups, faith leaders, abolitionists, students, artists, and people from all over. But police, prosecutors, and even Governor Kemp have been trying to suggest in the media and in court that the opposition to Cop City is actually the work of a criminal organization whose members conspire to commit acts of terrorism. In essence, they're trying to concoct a RICO-like story about the movement. So, Kamal Franklin, Marlon Counts and the two others arrested remain in jail from Wednesday? Yes, they still are in jail. They have a bail, a bail hearing coming up today at 1 o'clock. Um, and I should say, based on you know what Marlon was talking about, we've heard rumors for months um, that the other parts of the infrastructure of the movement would be attacked. Uh, we've come out with different videos uh, showing support and acknowledging that this information, although uh, could not be verified at the time, was something that was sort of laid at our doorstep, um, that other parts of the movement to stop Cop City would be attacked because the city and the state were scared that all, through all of their tactics, the movement has not gone away. In fact, it has grown. Um, and so we think that the, the attack, when it finally did happen, you know, it came at a time um, when, as you stated, the city of Atlanta, through the city council, is about to vote um, uh, to give funding to this, this uh, training center to Cop City um, after it was exposed that instead of $30 million, it would be $67 million, double the cost, which they've lied about for two years, telling the public that it would be, and I say in air quotes, only $30 million. In addition to that, the last city council hearing, hundreds of people turned out to speak. Many were turned away. Over 100 people were turned away from speaking. It was the largest gathering at City Hall to make comment and protest any ordinance and or bill that the city council has ever introduced. They knew that a repeat of that was going to happen this Monday, June 5th, when they're actually going to be voting on the resources, giving the resources to the Atlanta Police Foundation, a private foundation itself, which probably is the real uh, uh, entity that's a criminal nonprofit entity. Um, that is what we think prompted the move by, again, the city and the state and the police and the district attorney of DeKalb County to move now to, again, further criminalize this movement um, in the face of massive protests against Cop City. Kamal, we just have 30 seconds. This would be the largest police training facility in the country. Some would say, isn't it good for police to be trained? Why are you so opposed? And so many from indigenous people protesting the use of the land to environmentalists overall, uh, to people who are deeply concerned about police brutality. 
because we understand that this this cop city is not just for training. The officer that killed uh, Rashad Brooks in Atlanta had over 2000 hours of training. This is not about the training of police. This is about the militarization of police, the over policing of black communities and the attacking of movements and organizations that oppose police violence. This is an extension of that. And that's why we are against Cop City, because we know this is not about training. This is about police militarization and the over policing of black communities. Kamau Franklin, founder of the organization Community Movement Builders, speaking to us from Atlanta, Georgia. Coming up, the billionaire Sackler family gets legal immunity. As a federal appeals court rules, the OxyContin makers can be shielded from prosecution for their role in creating and fueling the deadly opioid epidemic. Back in 30 seconds. The trees grow higher than the mountain In the land of free love and goodbye The rivers ever grow and the fish is flowing And the love lives in the sky Lives in the Sky by Cat Stevens, also known as Yusuf Islam. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. This week, a federal appeals court ruled members of the Sackler family, the billionaire owners of OxyContin maker Purdue Pharma, can receive complete immunity from all current and future civil litigation related to their role in creating and fueling the opioid epidemic. The legal shield could lead to a settlement in the range of $6 billion for thousands of plaintiffs, including states, local governments and tribes. Tuesday's ruling reverses a 2021 court decision that did not protect Sackler family members from liability as part of Purdue Pharma's bankruptcy declaration. The case can still be appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Opioid overdoses have killed over half a million people in the United States over the past 20 years, this according to the CDC, including prescription and illicit drugs. For more, we're joined by two guests. Ed Bish's 18-year-old son, Eddie, died of an OxyContin-related overdose in 2001. He was 18. Ed Bish founded RAP, that's Relatives Against Purdue Pharma. He wrote an essay for Stat News titled, My Son Died of an Oxy Overdose. Drug company execs who are responsible should be sent to jail. Ed Bish has long called on the Department of Justice to prosecute the Sacklers. And in Mexico City, Christopher Glazik joins us, investigative reporter who was the first to publicly report how the Sackler family had significantly profited from selling the opioid OxyContin while fully aware that the highly addictive drug was directly fueling the opioid epidemic in America. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Ed Bish, let's begin with you. If you can talk about why you oppose this court decision this week— what it means for you and your family. <clears throat> well, what, what it means is it. the best part of this deal is it doesn't has nothing to do with criminal prosecution. So for that, I am happy. Otherwise, that is 
in my opinion, the only good part of this deal. There's uh, many reasons. Uh, most of the news stories are saying that 95% of the victims approved of the deal, while only 20% of the victims voted. So, you know, that's very misleading. I mean, I, I have a long list. Number one, the, the total deals valued about $10 billion. The victims get $750 million, okay? That's 7.5%. Out of that, that's before the lawyer fees and expenses. So the victims are going to wind up with around 4%. Does that sound fair to you? What does that come to per person, Ed? Well, they, that's another thing. They have a point system. So, and you need valid records. So I talked to one lady who actually got addicted to Oxycontin, went to prison for forging Oxycontin prescriptions to feed her own addiction, went to prison. She filed and the lawyer said, well, we, we need proof. She said, I went to jail for two years. What kind of proof do you, they want a lot of records and some of them go back. A lot of people couldn't get the records. There's a lot of people who are going to be very disappointed. And please follow up with these people and in a year or two. Ed, just to be clear, um, you've been calling for the prosecution of the Sackler family. This court ruled they get total immunity. Your response to that? Well, they get civil immunity. They don't get criminal immunity. Mara Healy, the Massachusetts governor, has stated she has seen the evidence and the DOJ should do their job and prosecute. Punishable by fine means legal for a price. Just you know, these companies, not just Purdue, they look at it as the cost of doing business. They made billions and billions. They pay a portion in a fine and they walk away. In this case, the Sacklers get to walk away with civil immunity. They get to sleep like a baby at night. They're still billionaires without any criminal prosecutions. This is going to go on and on. I want to bring Christopher Glazik into this conversation. You have been covering this for decades, just as Ed Bish has been living the horror of losing his son for over 20 years now. He lost him in 20, uh, 2001. Um, can you talk about this latest deal, how it um, differs from previous ones and the overall scope of it, Chris? Yeah, I, you know, looking at the agreement, you'd have to say that the Sacklers did what they've always done. They struck a deal, they paid a bribe, and they're getting away with it. There's no admission of wrongdoing anywhere in the agreement. And the question is, is this really accountability? It, it's really important for people to understand the deal has this big fancy number in it, like the Sacklers are going to pay $6 billion. Well, they're going to pay that over 18 years. And when you have a giant fortune that's more than $10 billion, 
just the interest you earn every year is going to be enough to pay out that settlement. So it's important people understand the Sacklers are not losing their fortune. In fact, their fortune will probably be bigger in five years than it was five years ago. So you know, th there's a real question whether there's any accountability here in reality. Um, you know, the question wait a second. Is how wait, did they get wait. This I want to follow deal? up. Uh, yeah. I want to follow up on what you just said. You're saying that their profits will grow. What do you mean? I'm saying when you have a fortune that's more than $11 billion, you know, just from your investments alone, from interest, even if you bought, you know, T-bills, you know, treasury bills from the federal government, you're earning so much money every year from your investments. And you know, so it's not like the Sacklers are going to send a wire over tomorrow for $6 billion. They have 18 years to pay a lot of the money. That means that the, the, the impact on them, on their day-to-day -day lives, on the number of dollars in their bank account is way, way, way smaller than it first appears. In 2019... And, and in, in literal dollar terms... Go ahead. No, go ahead, Chris. Oh, no, just, you know, in literal dollar terms, their fortune is not going to shrink and it probably will, will, will grow even larger. And so, you know, when we ask the question, have the Sacklers paid, uh, you know, is, is this a big judgment for them? Is this going to change their lives? The answer is, is probably not. And then the question becomes, how did they get such a sweetheart deal? Um, and, you know, there, there's a couple things to say about that. The first, you know, the original judge in this case was handpicked by the Sacklers. They did this crazy legal maneuver where they changed their headquarters at the last minute to White Plains, New York, because there was only one bankruptcy judge in that district. And, uh, and then that judge ended up being very favorable for the Sacklers. He announced during the case it would be his last case ever. He was retiring. And then since retiring, he got a job with one of the law firms representing the Sacklers. That's number one. Number two, and this is really important for people to understand, the Sacklers had a giant fortune, most of which is held in offshore accounts. A lot of it's in the Isle of Jersey in the English Channel. And it is beyond the reach of U.S. government prosecutors. So the, the, the Sacklers said in the court case, they made the argument, hey, if you don't take this deal, it doesn't matter what judgment you get against us in the future. Maybe a court will award you $30 billion, you're not going to get a cent because all the money is offshore and you can't get at it. So the Sacklers had this really big leverage in the negotiation, which was that their money was protected. U.S. regulators could not get at their money. And for that reason, they said, hey, if you don't take this deal, you're going to get nothing. So you know, the, the, those two things are really important to, to, to point out. Yeah. In two and, then, you know, it, the, and then the other thing, which go ahead. Go ahead. Well, and, the, and then the third thing, you know, how did this deal come, come about? You know, they, they, they use this kind of novel legal procedure to uh, insulate themselves from any future civil prosecution. And the reason that it is raising eyebrows is because they had this company that went bankrupt. Well, they, they extracted all the money out of the company. So it was really like a shell. And then as part of the bankruptcy agreement, they said, you know, you can't ever go after us as if the family had declared bankruptcy. Because it's normal when you declare bankruptcy, you know, people can't go after you for, for civil judgments. But in this case, the family did not declare bankruptcy. And far from being bankrupt, they remain among the very richest people in the history of the world. And they're going to remain so for, for generations to come.
In 2019, the investigative news organization ProPublica published video of Dr. Richard Sackler of Purdue Pharma, the maker of OxyContin. A part of his deposition he gave in 2015 lawsuit in Kentucky, uh, we're going to play a clip of. The company waged a three-year legal battle to keep the video secret. Sackler was questioned by attorney Tyler Thompson. Sitting here today, um, after all you've come to learn as a witness, do you believe Purdue's conduct in marketing and promoting OxyContin in Kentucky caused any of the prescription drug addiction problems now plaguing the Commonwealth? I don't believe so. Sitting here today, after all you've come to learn as witness, do you believe that Purdue's conduct in Kentucky has led to an excessive or unnecessary amount of opioids being located throughout the Commonwealth of Kentucky? I don't believe so. Do you believe that any of Purdue's conduct has led to an increase in people being addicted in the Commonwealth of Kentucky? No. Dr. Richard Sackler was chairman and president of Purdue Pharma, the maker of OxyContin. Um, Ed Bish, you lost your son in 2001 at the age of 18. Your response to what he says in this testimony that was long concealed. I'm glad that it got out. It saw the light of day. A lot more documents are going to see the light of day. Am I surprised? Not even a little. How he sleeps at night, I don't know. The crimes are well documented. Chris has wrote, written some great articles. Um, Dope Sick on Hulu, Crime of the Century on HBO. And on August 10th, Painkiller is going to show on Netflix. 2003, the very first book documenting their crimes, Painkiller, was published. 2001 was the very first congressional hearing on OxyContin deaths. 2001, I went to that hearing. And, you, you know, I read the headline, Purdue going out business. Oh, finally. As soon as I start reading it and I saw the Sacklers are demanding immunity, I said, this is a bankruptcy scam. And that's one thing this, this uh, bankruptcy scam has exposed the crazy bankruptcy laws like judge shopping, like these third party releases. And I hope it does go to the Supreme Court and they do the right thing. Will they? I have no idea. Um, the only thing that can make up for this travesty is DOJ, do your job, follow the evidence. Mara Healy says she's seen the evidence. She was an attorney general, and they should prosecute. And so I, I pray every night that they do their job. Christopher Glazek, um, we're going to do part two of this discussion and post it at democracynow.org. But I wanted to ask you about the many organizations that have dropped the Sackler name from buildings like the Guggenheim, like the Louvre, most recently Oxford University. Can you talk about the significance of this? And also, uh, you know, just the fact that you say their wealth is ever increasing in their offshore accounts. Yeah, well, so there's one provision um, in the bankruptcy agreement which is quite interesting and important, and it says that any institution that has the Sackler name on it 
can take down the name, and the Sacklers cannot challenge that, even if they had some contracts and prior agreement. And there, you've seen over the last few years, in the wake of media coverage and activism, there's been this kind of domino effect of first museums and then universities taking down the Sackler name. And it was really interesting to see this process play out. You know, I wrote this piece. There were other articles. There was a lot of media attention around the Sacklers in late 2017. But at first, you know, I called all these museums and they said, we're not doing anything. We're not taking this down. This isn't our business. I called universities, you know, Yale. You know, they, they said, no, no, thank you. Um, and then the activism started. And, you know, there had always been activism. But, you know, Nan Golden in particular in the art world conducted a series of really public actions that got a lot of media attention and really hit the Sacklers where it hurt. And she, you know, using her own influence in the art world and gathering all these people together, essentially forced a lot of museums to take down the name. Chris Glazik, we're going to have to leave it there, but we're going to talk about that activism in part two. Thank you so much for being with us, investigative reporter and Ed Bish, founder of Relatives Against Purdue Pharma. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining me.